Good morning, Lighthouse. I am so glad that you all are here this morning. For those of you joining us online, it's great to have you with us this morning. And uh, I believe that God's got a great message for us, a challenge for us this morning. But before I jump into that, I want to uh, just let you know that on Easter, we're going to be celebrating baptism, which is one of the most glorious times in the life of the church as we celebrate new life together. People who have made that decision to call Jesus Christ Lord and to follow him. It's a public profession of faith. And we're going to do that on Easter, which has its roots. Baptism has its roots in Easter because they used to use the time of Lent as a time of preparation for baptism, which took place on Easter. So it's going to be a glorious day, as Pastor Michael just told us in the video. It's going to be an amazing day. And one of the highlights of Easter is celebrating new birth, the resurrection that is to come for people who have made that decision for Jesus. So if you're one of those people... If you've made a decision for Christ, and, and maybe you've been a Christian for a little while, but you've never made that public profession, you've never uh, been baptized, I would encourage you to, to make Easter that huge um, monumental celebration in your life. Uh, and, and so today, Pastor Bruce is going to be teaching a baptism class right after second service, and uh, we'd love to have you join us in that. If you can't make that, give Elaine a call at the office, and uh, we'll make a connection with you, and we'll, we'll help you get the training you need to be prepared for baptism on Easter Sunday, okay? So that's today. The last thing before I jump into the message, I wanted to, I haven't said this in a while, and I want to make sure that you hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want to make sure that you hear this that God loves you. Easter, Easter is the monumental day of God's proof that he loves you. That one day, for those of us who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, we will commune, we will party with God in heaven because of his sacrifice for us. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. So now we jump into this message. We're starting a four-week series today. And uh, have you ever found yourself saying, uh, saying this phrase, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I mean, you can say that phrase in so many situations and in so many circumstances. You think about it like a kid who looks at his mom and goes, mom, what's the big deal? Or a group of guys and one looks at, hey, what's, what's the big deal, right? Or, or in anger, we find ourselves going, what's the big deal? It's a great phrase that we have used so many different times. And, and there's a story in the Bible where we can actually kind of feel this phrase come out. The story is found in Mark chapter 9. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to just kind of tell and share the story with you. So kind of leading up to Mark chapter 9 in the previous chapters, we find that Jesus is kind of going around, he's speaking, he's doing all of these different miracles, you know, uh, healing people, feeding thousands of people with meager rations, and, and he's picking up popularity, people coming from all over the place to see him. They want their friends, family members themselves to be healed, and he's gaining popularity. And this right now in chapter 9 is kind of where we see Jesus begin the journey to the cross, which for us as followers of Jesus begins next week, Palm Sunday. 
But Jesus, right now in chapter 9, we begin to see this journey to the cross. And in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus goes up onto a, a high mountain, Mark 9 says. He goes up onto the top of a high mountain. He takes the triumvirate, James, John, and Peter. They go up on the mountain, and, and Jesus, in the midst on this mountain, it's called, uh, you know, Jesus has this meeting with God the Father, and, he, and, and Moses and Elijah show up in this, me, in this meeting, and, and Peter and James and John are in awe and in shock, and, and Peter, they don't know what to do, so Peter kind of mumbles out, maybe I should build a tabernacle for you three, right? And, and it's like, whoa, Peter, he's up, okay? And so Jesus, it's kind of, it's kind of like, I, I feel like, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but I feel like it's kind of the pep talk. It's kind of the pep talk for Jesus before he starts making the journey to the cross, right? It's kind of the planning, it's the game planning, the father's meeting with the son, James, or, uh, uh, Moses, Elijah, kind of the offensive and defensive coordinators who are game planning with Jesus, what's about to come, he knows what's coming, right? It's not going to be pretty, it's going to be painful, and so this is kind of the big meeting before they start moving on. And so they get done with the meeting. The father, Moses, Elijah, they kind of they leave the situation. And all that's left is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. It was an amazing meeting for those three to get to see and to be a part of. So they get done, and you can imagine, I, I don't know if there's much conversation, right? As they're walking down, kind of maybe looking at each other saying, can you believe what we just saw? That was crazy. Probably on, you know, one of those mountain highs, right? If you, for those of you who maybe grew up in the church, you went to uh, youth camp in middle school or high school, and you remember you'd come back and you'd be on that camp high where you met with God and, and your life was transformed that literally happened for Peter, James, and John. They had the mountain high. They met with God. They saw God the Father meeting with God the Son. And they're coming down, and they're just filled with victory and excitement. And as they're coming down the mountain, they run into this crowd. They run into this crowd, and there's arguing, Mark tells us. There's arguing between Jesus' disciples and the spiritual religious leaders of the day, and they're arguing back and forth. And I imagine as they're walking down, Peter, James, and John look at the other disciples literally and go, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Jesus, on the other hand, looks and says, what are you arguing with them about? Jesus looks at them, what are you guys arguing about? At this point, a man steps out from the crowd and says, hey, Jesus, I brought my son to you, which really it wasn't Jesus. Just kind of on a side note, it's really interesting how people see Jesus in Jesus' followers. Jesus' disciples were identified with their rabbi, so much so that when this man steps out, he says, I brought my son to you, but he really brought him to Jesus' disciples. So on a side note, when people look at us as followers of Jesus, they're identifying Jesus by the followers. When they look at us as followers of Jesus, they're, they're, they are picturing Jesus 
when they see what we do and hear what we say. Huge responsibility there. I don't have enough time to unpackage that for us right now. We'll get into that another time. But this man looks at Jesus and he says, teacher, I I brought my son to you. And your disciples couldn't heal him. My son is possessed by a demon who robs him of his speech and continuously tries to, he throws him on the ground and he rolls him around. And he's possessed by this demon. He's robbed him of his speech. You know, he foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. It's an ugly sight. And your disciples couldn't heal him. And Jesus looks at him, and he looks at the rest of the crowd. And I imagine he kind of shakes his head, and he says, you unbelieving generation. How much longer am I going to be here with you? Bring the boy to me. So they bring the boy out. And immediately when the boy sees him, the demon inside of him just squeals and throws the boy on the ground. And the boy's just rolling and exhibiting exactly what his father had said he does. Rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus looks at the father. And now this next situation just kind of strikes me as funny. And it may not to you. But I'm picturing this commotion, this kid's rolling around, and Jesus looks at the dad as all of the pandemonium's going on. He looks at him and he goes, hmm, how long has he been doing that? And the dad says, well, since he's been a child. All the time, they're having this conversation while the kid's just rolling around, right? And Jesus says, how long has he been like this? And the dad, I imagine, with tears welling up in his eyes, says, since childhood, And this stupid demon keeps trying to kill him. He keeps trying to throw him into fire. He keeps trying to throw him into water. And he just keeps trying to kill him. And at this point, I picture the father is just weeping for his son, as any parent would. Jesus looks up, and he sees that an even bigger crowd is starting to run towards them. And Jesus looks at the demon. He looks at the child. He says, get out of him, you deaf and mute demon. Get out of him and never come back. I love that part. I love that part. Never come back. You deaf and mute demon. Get out of him and never come back. And it says that the boy just shrieked, the demon shrieked within him and then left. And the boy laid there. And the boy was so still that the people around thought that he was dead. But Jesus reached down with his hand, grabbed the child, and lifted him up. And he went away. I'm sure the father rejoicing in this moment. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal about this story? Well, what we learn here in this story is that the story isn't always about the story. The story isn't always about the story. What do I mean by that? What lies behind, what lies behind it? What's, what's going on in this? Have you ever found yourself saying the statement, I did not see that coming? I did not see that coming. Maybe you were reading a book 
or you were listening to a, a friend tell a story, or you were watching a movie, and the twist at the end was so huge that, that you were left slack-jawed and speechless, and the only words that could come out of your mouth were, I did not see that coming. I remember, I remember we were living in San Diego, Sean and I, and I remember that being the case with the worldwide sensation that, that was the movie, The Sixth Sense. You remember that? For those of you, if, if you saw that movie, okay? And I remember that. We were, Sean and I we were, and the girls, we were living in San Diego, and that movie by M. Night Shyamalan, that, that, that was the talk of the town. People were like, have you seen The Sixth Sense yet? Oh, the end of it is crazy, right? And the movie is, it, it, stars, uh, uh, it stars Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis plays a child psychologist who has a child patient played by Haley Joel Osment. And, and the, the famous line by the child is, I see dead people, right? And I mean, that was freaky for the longest time after that movie. Yeah, I see dead people, right? And so you, you think that the story is about this child psychologist trying to help this child understand what he's seeing, trying to help him process what he's seeing. And the humongous twist at the end of the movie is when you realize that the roles are reversed, that the child is trying to help the adult understand that he is actually dead. And it was like mind-blowing I mean it was so crazy at the end that twist and they flash back through all these scenes where the, the the child psychologist realizes that he is no longer alive and it was like oh literally sit in the theater slack jawed speechless speechless say did not see that coming and that's kind of the situation that we see right here this is the exact situation we see in the interaction that Jesus has with a crowd, with a father who simply wants his son to be healed, and with his own disciples. But the truth of the matter is that the story is much different than they think. I mean, the, what they're seeing is a byproduct of something even bigger. What they think they're seeing really is that a boy gets healed. They think, you know, that the father gets his son back. They think that the crowd has witnessed a miracle. I mean, it's a great story, right? But as we learned, the story isn't always about the story. The miraculous healing, listen to me, the miraculous healing was not the point of this historical event. The miraculous healing was not the point of this historical event. The healing, that miraculous healing, was simply a conduit to an even bigger spiritual truth that the disciples and the people needed to learn. And it was foreshadowed by Jesus' statement, you unbelieving generation, how much longer am I going to be with you? That was the foreshadowing, right? There was a bigger lesson to be learned here. 
So what is behind the story? Well, what's behind the story we find in the disciples' question and Jesus' answer. See, Jesus called out the demon, told him to never return. The demon shrieks, leaves the boy seemingly lifeless until Jesus reaches down, lifts up his hand. The crowd awes. There's like, oh, that's crazy. The dad is just weeping and grabs his son because he's got him back and he's hugging him and holding him. And the crowd is going wild. And Jesus and the disciples, they quietly just kind of leave the situation, go inside, and I'm sure they rest and begin to eat some things. And in this moment, the disciples ask the question. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why? Why couldn't we do that? And it's a fair question. It's a fair question because the disciples had not just seen Jesus do this exact kind of thing. They had done it themselves. They'd done it before. If you go from Mark chapter 9 all the way back to Mark chapter 6, and in this passage of Scripture, as Jesus is beginning to, to become hugely popular, he took his 12 disciples and he, he broke them up into teams of two. And he began to send them out into the villages. And they were kind of the, the pre-show, right? They were kind of the warm-up band to the concert that was coming to town. And they were supposed to go into these towns to proclaim the message of God's love and salvation. And Jesus was probably going to be making his way to these different towns. And so Jesus says to them, as, he, as he's beginning to send them out in, in groups of two, it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and give them authority over impure spirits or unclean spirits, Okay. And then Jesus gives them some, some uh, other words, some other um, things that they need to live by. Don't take an extra cloak with you. Don't take a money bag with you. When you go into the town, stay in the home of somebody there, which is typical of Jewish hospitality, that they would stay with somebody. And Jesus said, stay there as long as, as, as you're going to be in the town. And if you're not welcomed, you know, take the dust off your shoes, throw it against him. It's going to be a testimony. But then now go, get out of here. And it says the disciples went into these different towns. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, we read this. It says, they went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons. They drove out many demons and anointed sick, pe or sick people with oil and healed them. Okay? Do you see what's going on there? This wasn't anything new to them. In Mark chapter 9, I, I'm sure the disciples look at him and go, yeah, 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 we, we've done this before. Bring the boy here. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Didn't work. Maybe I should use more of an authoritative voice. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Still didn't work. And now they're starting to get a little bit nervous because this whole thing that worked before isn't working now. What is going on? What's the problem? What's the big deal? What gives? Why did the anointing in chapter 6 not transfer to chapter 9? 
What's happening here? And here's where the answer comes in. We find it in Jesus' answer. Just like in the sixth sense, we're, we're blown away by Jesus' answer. That healing that happened in chapter 9. Jesus said this. Jesus replied to their question, why could we not do this? Why couldn't we make the, the demon go out? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Only by prayer. And see, it doesn't tell us in Scripture, but my thought and my belief is that they were going out in the authority of Jesus in chapter 6. They were going out with Jesus' authority, that Jesus had prayed over them, and Jesus had prepared them for this moment. In chapter 9, they had not learned to do the work that Jesus had done. They had not learned the power of prayer. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Would you say that with me? Prayer changes things. You know what I'm guilty of? And maybe some of you are guilty of the same thing. I'm guilty of praying prayers of last resort. I'm guilty of praying emergency prayers. When I have, when I have used up every other avenue to answer a situation or a problem or a crisis when I've used every other avenue of medicine, of human wisdom, of my own work, I pray a desperate prayer, God help me. I pray prayers of last resort. But what is the example that Jesus gives to you and to me, huh? Jesus never prays emergency prayers because Jesus' whole life is a prayer. Jesus is in continual and continuous conversation with the Heavenly Father. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, then this should be our life as well. There is power in prayer when prayer is the life of the prayer. Did you catch that? There is power in prayer when prayer is the life of the prayer or the person the follower who prays. There's power in that. See, for the disciples, they had not made the connection of a powerful prayer life to the power in their life. They hadn't made the connection to the power of prayer to the power that would come from their life. The reason why they couldn't heal this, this boy is because they hadn't invested in the power of prayer. And it wasn't until after Jesus had gone that Jesus' own brother James would write this. He would write, and the prayer offered in faith. The prayer offered in faith. See, there's a part of that story. When Jesus says to the boy's father, you know, the, 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 the father says, help him if you can. And Jesus says, if you can? If you can, 
Everything is possible for him who believes. And then the dad says something remarkable. He says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And James would say, and the prayer offered in faith. Faith is a belief in things to come. A belief, wholehearted, undeterred belief in things to come. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And I kind of, I almost think that James has in the back of his mind the story of what happened in Mark chapter 9. James goes on to say in, in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So what's the big deal? The story wasn't about the story. The story wasn't about healing. The story was about prayer. The story was about faith that manifests, manifests itself in a trust of God the Father that he will answer these prayers. The story behind the story. So what's the big deal? And that, my friends, is the question specifically for this time of year. As we move into the most gripping, the most stunning, the most important, eternity-shaking time in history, the journey to the cross, you and I have to ask the question, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the big deal with the palms? What's the big deal with the palms? Why were they throwing out palms? What's the big deal about that last meal, that last supper? What's the big deal about the empty tomb? What? So what? Look at, look at the pyramids in Egypt. There ain't nobody in there. Nobody's making a big deal about that. What's the big deal about an empty tomb? And what's the big deal about a revolutionary aftermath that changed the course of history? My friends, what's the big deal? Ha! And that is what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. We're going to be talking about why this time that we remember and in fact celebrate why this is such a big deal. And I hope that you get as excited as I am. I hope that you will take the opportunity to invite somebody out of your circle of seven to the most incredible, epic event in the history of history that all of Christianity holds on to the truth of Easter. That's a big deal. And we're going to be talking about that over the next three weeks. So, I have three follow-up questions that I would like for you to consider today, this week, maybe talking with, a, you know, with somebody that you've been here with, or just to talk with friends over, even just for you to, to meditate on. Three questions. The first one, what is prayer, and what is its link to power in this life? Just thinking about the story behind the story in Mark chapter 9. And the power of prayer. And what is that link 
to this life. Second question. I want you to talk about a time in your life when something turned out different than you expected. Something turned out different than you expected. And what were the circumstances and what did you learn? That last one's the big question. What did you learn? And finally, the third question. What's the big deal about Easter? What is the story behind Easter? And I know it's easy for us to sit down and say, Jesus Christ came to earth, walked around for 33 years, crucified on a cross, buried, stoned, angels, rolled away, resurrected, went to heaven. But I'm asking you today, in this week, to ponder why that story is so important. To think about why Easter is such a big deal. And what is the story behind the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the truth, my friends, that you and I seek today. And this morning, we are going to, we're going to sing a new song in preparation for Easter. And I, I love this song. I'm so excited about this song. It's called, I Thank God. And let me tell you something. If Easter reveals anything, it's two things. One is the love that God has for you. And two is the heart of incredible gratitude and thanksgiving that you and I should have towards that God who loves us so much. Now, in this song, it's, it's very visually, or it's, it's such a great picture, and it talks about hell has lost one. Hell has, when you and I, listen to me, when we meet together on Easter Sunday and those people get baptized, it is basically saying God is victorious and hell has lost another one. And I'm going to tell you what, right now, I get goosebumps. I see my friend Roland, who's a, who's a retired pastor and district superintendent, raising his hands because that is the story of victory that we have in Jesus. You, you need to stand up. You need to put a smile on your face. You need to be, come on, stand up. Because let me tell you something, when God has the victory, hell loses. And we should be celebrating that. Can I get an amen? My Father in heaven, thank you for this day. We bring glory and honor to you. Jesus, today we're reminded, we're reminded that you went to hell and took the keys of life back. That which was stolen is in your hands now. That you are victorious. And in this life, we can have victory through power, through, through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we can have victory. We can have victory over, over habits. We can have victory over addictions. We can have victory in relationships. We can have victory over death because you have claimed that victory for us. We thank you for that, God. And today, we celebrate. And as we learn this new song and sing it in preparation for Easter, may it encourage us and challenge us to find others to share this epic message of your love and the life offered to us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.